Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm really delighted to be joined by Professor Martin Marshall, Chair of the Royal College of GPs. We spoke earlier this week ahead of the college's annual conference that begins in London next Wednesday. This year, the conference is taking place in conjunction with the World Association of Family Doctors, or WONCA's, European Conference. In our conversation, Professor Marshall talks about the government's attitude to general practice, how he believes the workforce and workload crisis could be tackled, and the backlog of care. We also talked about the future of the NHS under integrated care systems, and his views on primary care networks, and I asked him about whether he feels positive about the future of general practice. Just before we start, I just want to mention that GP Online is once again the media partner for the RCGP's annual conference. You can read all the news from the event next week on our website at gponline.com. I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor Martin Marshall, who's chair of the Royal College of GPs. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's a pleasure. Good to join you. We spoke on the podcast in October last year, and at the time you were feeling sort of quite hopeful that the government, with you know, with a relatively new health secretary, Sajid Javid, was listening and would take steps to improve things for GPs. But, you know, unfortunately, we've not really seen much sign of that. And, you know, we've seen the latest contract imposed on the profession. How do you feel about the government's attitude to general practice now? Does it really understand the challenges that GPs are facing? And do you think it it really intends to help? Yeah, I think hopeful is probably the right word for for what I expressed last October, rather than optimistic. Uh, There is a difference between the two. Um, It it does feel to me as if the government's got so many things on its agenda anyway, plus it doesn't understand general practice. So when you put those two things together, it's a pretty toxic mix for for, for general practice. General practice is still in in a very significantly stressed place. We see across the country practices struggling to do what we know our patients want and expect us to be able to do. We're seeing practices suffering as a consequence, particularly with recruitment and retention. We know the figures that we've expressed many times, um, 60% of GPs say their mental health has deteriorated in the last year. We know a third of GPs say that at least once a week, basically panic that they just can't do their job anymore. And we know that around about a third of GPs say they're going to be retiring in the next five years. So that's a crisis by any standards. And I don't think government understands the implications of not addressing that crisis implications for individual patients, of course, implications for the way the NHS uh, works as as well. And we're seeing pressures across the whole of the NHS, many of which, you know, at least could be partially alleviated by investing properly in general practice. So it's a real problem. And government doesn't seem to have the headspace to respond in a way that we hope and think that they should. I was just wondering, during your time as chair of the college, have you ever really had the sense that the government has the will to kind of address the crisis in general practice? I think they have the will. I, I think they, you know, they, they do understand the messages that we and others have put across, that if general practice collapses, the rest of the NHS collapses. They understand that. It's a question of how do you do it? So the big ask that, that we have been making consistently and we're bringing together into a campaign which will be launching in the next week or so are consistent ones. We need a larger workforce. We need more GPs. We need that promise of the 6,000, but actually 6,000 plus GPs delivered. And even though it's difficult, they've got to find ways of delivering it. And part of that is is about continuing to recruit more GPs, expanding the number of training places. We're asking for a 10% expansion in training places every year, year on year. But a lot of it is about better retention. And that's about 
retention schemes, but it's also about making the job more doable. So the many GPs who actually basically still love their job, being a GP is the most amazingly privileged job. It's an exciting, it's a stimulating job. I don't think there's any doubt it's the best job in medicine. We've got to find a way of keeping those people in the workforce because if more people leave, the risk is a downward spiral. One of the things that's causing quite a lot of concern at the moment is what's going to happen with the future of the independent contractor status. What sort of impact do you think it has on general practice when you've got a health secretary that has talked about phasing out the GMS contract and potentially moving to a salaried service? Well, I suppose you said reportedly, but he did back that report that did call for that. Yeah, I think I think there's a little bit of mischief making here, to be perfectly honest. The independent contractor status, the college has been consistently supportive of it. Now, you know, we know that the the the, the status is changing. And um, when I started in general practice, about 90%, maybe even more of GPs were partners. Now it's around about 50% of, of GPs. More GPs are salaried. And to a certain extent, that's a purposeful choice on their part. They don't want to carry the risks. They want to focus on providing um, clinical care. But the benefits of the partnership um, uh, uh, model are just very clear in terms of the innovation, the flexibility, which we saw in spades during the pandemic, of course. Um, And most importantly, from a government perspective, the cost effectiveness, the goodwill that the partnership buys is just remarkable. And even if the Secretary of State in um, making a little bit of mischief wants to shake things up a bit, I can't believe that the Treasury would ever say, "Okay." We'll find the money to buy general practice out. So it's a nonsense in many ways. Now, you know, as a college, we are supportive of multiple models of general practice. We don't think that the partnership model is the only one. We believe the salary model, even, dare I say, some of the suggestions around GPs being employed by hospitals, we don't think that's a good thing because most hospitals just don't have the capacity or capability to do it. But it's a model that if it's properly evaluated and properly implemented and works in some areas, we're not completely against it. So flexibility is what's required, but flexibility that doesn't go for the kind of populist, I think, rather silly stance that if general practice were nationalised, everything would be okay. Sajid Javid, last week in his speech at the NHS Confederation, he he said that the current model of primary care isn't working. Do you agree with that statement at all? Yes, I think it's patently clear that it isn't working because it's under pressure in a way that patients aren't getting the service that they want to need and GPs aren't able to deliver the service that we know that patients want and need. So it patently isn't working. He's right there. Um, the issue, I think, is that it's his responsibility to sort it out. General practice are doing everything that they possibly can. If you look at the level of innovation in general practice, it's truly remarkable the extent to which practices have embraced working at scale, embraced the multidisciplinary agenda. They've embraced the use of technology. They've embraced more of a population health focus. All of these changes, if you look to any other sector and look to how dramatically it's changed in what is a very short period of time in historical terms, general practice is doing everything it can to continue to maintain high quality services, but it can't do any more without the proper help of government, without the proper interest and investment from government. And that's what's missing. In that speech, he also talked about, he sort of said he intended to set out a plan for primary care soon. And he also mentioned this 15 year workforce strategy, which it feels like we've been waiting ages for. You talked a bit earlier there about your campaign about more people 
bigger workforce. What would the college want to see in both this primary care plan and the workforce strategy? What are you hoping, not just for GPs, but, you know, for the whole of primary care? Yeah, our, our vision of general practice has been a consistent one, actually. We, we most recently published it in 2019 with Fit for the Future, but that was actually quite similar to the plan that we published 10 years um, previously. So our vision of general practice is more collaborative working across practices. So we know that the front end of general practice needs to stay small, it needs to stay local, that's what general practice is about. But we know that behind that front end, we need a a greater infrastructure to allow general practice to do things that modern organisations need to do. So larger scale is one element. Um, Greater multidisciplinarity is really important, but most importantly, it's support for those multidisciplinary teams to help them to work. There's no point just putting nurses and pharmacists and physios and mental health workers and link workers into primary care teams if those primary care teams are struggling already and don't have the time to be able to support those new members of the team and explore how you can work differently when you're part of a team. So I think that is really important. And we know that the role of the GP will gradually progressively in an evolutionary way that will change as a consequence of being part of a team. So rather than the GP being all things to all people, GPs will increasingly focus on where they can add um, greatest value. So multidisciplinarity is really important. Working across the interface is really important. I think the model in which um, general practice does everything it can when it hits a brick wall, it then asks for specialists to come in, disease-based specialists, hospital specialists to come in. And that isn't the model that, that works anymore because so much of what we do is very complex. So we need a much closer interaction between generous and specialists working in community settings for the benefit of patients, a more proactive approach in which we have discussions with hospital-based specialist teams at an earlier stage in the the process. And we need a much stronger focus on population health, on what we call community health improvement, which is how do we utilise the assets that exist in communities more effectively? A lot of GPs are doing that really well. How do we address health inequalities? How do we make sure that the medical model is used appropriately where it adds value, but we recognise the social determinants of health? And then finally, Secretary of State needs to really work hard on improving the technology that that supports us in doing what we need to do. And that means um, stopping the slightly irritating discussions we have about the balance between face-to-face and remote care you know the reality is it looks like things have stabilized pretty well over maybe the last nine months or more with just over 60 percent of consultations being face-to-face across the primary care team and 40 percent being remote that's a shift from about 20 percent being remote pre-pandemic we've learned a lot about through the pandemic about what we can do remotely i think that balance is about right but allow practices to work it out for themselves you know different practices work in different ways my practice at east london we've got a very young population it's socially economically deprived but it but it's very tech enabled so probably we'll deliver a higher proportion of remote consultations than a practice serving a more traditional community so i think there's lots of things that we've been very consistent in what we expect of this new plan, whatever that might mean uh, for general practice. If it's in line with what we've seen from the fuller stock take in England, we think that's by and large a good thing. I think the fuller stock take is actually quite sensible. And in many ways, we were involved, as many others were, in discussions about what it might look like. In many ways, it reflects what we've been asking for for a long period of time. And I hope that 
policymakers and politicians will listen to it as a consequence. Yeah, I was I was actually going to ask you about that because we're obviously talking, you know, it's it's a couple of weeks now, then we'll be moving to this new system where we've got integrated care systems looking after the populations in England and the NHS in England. So the stock take by Dr. Claire Fuller, which you mentioned there, and as you say, you, you have backed that, that basically sets out this vision for integrated primary care. You know, PCNs are obviously really crucial to this and how this is proposed to work, but it seems clear to me that quite a lot of GPs are becoming a bit disillusioned with networks. And and the BMA is also on the record recently said that they think that networks pose an existential threat to the future of the independent contractor status. What's your view quite generally about integrated care systems? And do you really believe that PCNs are important to the future of general practice? I'm not naive about whether the integrated care systems in England will make a dramatic difference because in the last 30 odd years, we've seen probably 20 different national attempts to improve integration across the NHS, and none of them have been terribly successful. So, you know, let's be realistic uh, about it. But is it the kind of move that we should support, i.e., is there a lot of fragmentation in the NHS? Yes. Is that fragmentation bad for patients, bad for clinicians, and wasteful of taxpayers' money? Then yes. So let's engage with ICSs and help them to work as effectively as possible. Now, if ICSs are the vehicle that allow the 42 localities across the country to say the way to deliver better health outcomes is to invest a higher proportion of our income in primary care services. That's a really good thing. And that, and it is ICSs that will make those decisions at local level. Government has patently failed to do that. And let's see what can happen at a local level. So we believe that at least in principle, ICSs are a reasonable way forward. And in practice, we believe our job is therefore to support them, not to complain from the sidelines about them. PCNs, again, you know, there's a lot of varied views about that. But I come back to what I said earlier. The college view has consistently been that working collaboratively across practices is an important and good thing um, to do. So PCNs shouldn't be a threat to practices. Practices as a front end of general practice, the the bit that that patients experience must remain as discrete entities serving their local communities. But the opportunity to collaborate between practices in areas like population health improvement, um, vaccination, sometimes management of workload, you know, those are all the kind of areas that, that we think are right. The problem with PCNs is much is being expected of them when they're very immature organisations in most cases and when they certainly haven't got adequate funding to make them work effectively. And that's a really big problem because if PCNs are the voice of general practice within ICSs, then we're asking an awful lot of them in a very short period of time. And that's a concern that the college has expressed for a long period of time. It's one of the reasons why we're saying as CCGs are abolished, then a lot of the infrastructure funding that goes into CCGs to support primary care needs to now go into those PCNs. It mustn't be absorbed into the wider system. We've got to make sure that PCNs are properly resourced in terms of you know management capacity, HR capacity, informatics, all of the elements that make a modern organisation work, they need to be properly resourced and we need to support them whilst they mature. That's one of the problems that when I talk to GPs, a lot of them just feel that PCNs are really adding to workload. 
the vision at the start was that they would help alleviate workload by bringing more and more of these people in. And while I think people appreciate the extra staff that are coming in, it takes a long time for them to train up. And some of them are just getting to the point where they're actually becoming really useful for practices. But now this year, we're seeing loads more work being piled into PCNs from the centre. It's not things that they necessarily want to do themselves. It's things that they're being told they have to do. Yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that, whether it, it, they need to be able to be sort of free to concentrate on the things that they want to do and not have to tick more boxes. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. If PCNs are seen by NHS England as the vehicle for just delivering more and more work that's coming to general practice, that clearly, very clearly isn't going to work. General practice is beyond the limits of its capability to deliver a, a high quality service, even at times a safe service, and just pouring more work into general practice, whether it be through practices or PCNs, simply doesn't make sense. And that's something which, you know, a lot of that is, is GPC territory rather than college territory, but we've, we've consistently been making the point to NHS England and to uh, the department that um, general practice can only do so much and it doesn't matter whether that's general practice operating through individual practices or through PCNs um, you need to think about that and you need to make sure that all the resources that go into PCNs are supporting practices to do the right thing not adding to the workload. One of the things I do think that's changed a bit since we last spoke um, in the autumn is uh, how the backlog of care is kind of impacting on general practice. It was obviously an issue back then, but it feels to me that sort of the pressure on practices now has become increasingly more acute. What, if anything, do you think could be done to help alleviate some of the pressures it's putting on general practice in particular? Yeah, we need to remember that there's two backlogs here. There's there's a hospital waiting list backlog and there's a general practice uh, backlog. So I assume you're referring to the hospital backlog at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you're absolutely right that when you've got people who are waiting around for operations, often with poor health or with deteriorating health, sometimes unable to work, then that workload drops on general practice. And, and, it's, and it's a very real uh, workload. The number of patients that I'm looking after who are on waiting lists for hip or knee replacements or hernia operations, who are sitting there unable to exercise, gaining weight, you know, those are all things that, that we're having to manage on top of everything else that, that's happening. As a college, we pointed that out consistently. What the answer is, I think, is, is less clear. We've got to clarify that looking after patients on waiting lists has to be a shared responsibility between general practice and the hospital teams whose waiting list they're on. We've got to clarify that. But it isn't, I don't think there's an easy answer to what is a crisis, I think, across yeah. all healthcare systems, that there's this massive backlog of work, and that's a real problem. The backlog in general practice, although I think is, is as important a one, but it's much less talked about, and that's a backlog for long-term condition uh, management. You know, I think general practice did a remarkable job during the pandemic of ensuring that we carried on looking after people who had unstable long-term conditions or poorly controlled long-term conditions, mm. albeit we did it often in different ways, but, you know, we, we were managing those patients. But a large proportion of the patients who have stable or reasonably well-controlled long-term conditions, we just didn't have the capacity or capability because of the pandemic to be able to manage. And we're now picking up the consequences of that. And there is some worrying data that suggests that in people who previously had stable long-term conditions, their care is now deteriorating as a consequence of not having um, regular checkups. So that's something that we've recognised for some time. Um, just a few weeks ago, we produced some guidance for practices to help them to prioritise those patients at greatest risk as we catch up 
But I think the main point here is that NHS England and policymakers need to understand that there's a backlog in general practice as well as a backlog in the hospital sector and that we need to talk about both. One of the things I also wanted to talk to you about um, is this situation with international medical graduates who've come through the GP training programme. So the college has been actually really vocal about raising this issue and the problems around visas, which means that when international graduates finish GP training, they face really awful bureaucracy to remain in the UK. You've written to the Home Secretary as well, arguing that the current system is probably putting GPs off from coming to work here. And we heard last week that UK trained GPs are facing deportation threats at the end of their training training. How common is that sort of scenario? And what do you want as the college to see happen to sort this out? I haven't seen any stats as to to how common it is, but it feels common when you talk to people on the ground. The problem here is the duration of GP training of three years rather than longer training in other specialties, which means that they have a gap at the end of three years. And that's where we need the, the visas to be sorted out. The Home Secretary hasn't been particularly responsive to our challenge, which is which is deeply frustrating. I guess it's caught up in the politics of immigration and everything else. But it, it's so patently obviously something that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed quickly when we have a workload crisis. We know international medical graduates are fundamentally important to the NHS. That's quite an uncomfortable position to be in because we've talked for a long time about being self-sufficient. And we know there isn't a country in the world that isn't short of all health professionals, particularly GPs. Um, So so it's an uncomfortable position to be in, but it's one that we've been in for a long period of time. About 30% of the workforce in general practice traditionally has have been IMGs. Um, Now it looks like nearly 50% of new entrants onto training schemes are international medical graduates. So a large number of our training places, which we're filling, which is great, are international medical graduates. And that's a real challenge in terms of us knowing that IMGs have a slightly lower pass rate for the exam and knowing that they need a bit more support when they get into practice. They're brilliant doctors when they get that support, but they need a bit more support to get into that into practices and not knowing what their career intentions might be. So they've been trained in the UK. Are they going to stay in the UK or are they going to move back to their home countries? That's a choice for them individually, but that clearly is a is a workforce challenge. So you know, we've got we've got a massive, massive challenge here. The most important thing to recognise is that IMGs are a core part of the NHS and they deliver an amazing service. I was I was in uh, Wales uh, last week and I met an F2 doctor, a second year foundation uh, doctor, who was brought up in Pakistan, who did his medical training in China in English, although he had to learn Mandarin in order to be able to communicate with the patients, and is now in the UK. He came to the UK because he, he's passionate about UK general practice and passionate about the NHS. He couldn't get a job immediately because of the visa problems, so he worked as a tax inspector for a couple of years. He's now gone on to foundation training and he wants to become a GP. Absolutely brilliant doctor. I mean, just amazing listening to him and talking to him, the variety of experiences that he expresses. And that's replicated across so many international medical graduates who are part of the answer to our crisis, but we've got to look after them. And at the most basic level, that means getting the visas to allow them to work. I know one of the things that you're really passionate about, and I'm sure it might come up in your speech to the conference next week, is relationship-based care. And this has been something you've really tried to highlight during your time as chair. Obviously, as we've talked about, things are really, really challenging in primary care at the minute with the workload and workforce crisis. How do you think practices can deliver relationship-based care in this current environment? Or is it something that we can only do when we've got more GPs and more other members of the multidisciplinary team? 
yeah, there's no doubt it'll be easier when you've got a proper workforce, but there's also no doubt that we can't forget about it between now and whenever in the future we might have a proper workforce in general practice because it's so fundamental to, to what we do. So really very clear that if I see a patient who I know and I've built a relationship with and they trust me, then the patient's more likely to be happy with the consultation. They're more likely to agree with, comply with any advice that I give them. Uh, they're more likely to get better clinical outcomes. They're less likely to go into hospital. The overall costs will be lower and I'll be happier. It should be a given that relationships are a core part of what we do. Recognising that some of general practice is transactional, that's fine. But a lot of it, probably more of it than policymakers realise, is dependent on relationships. Even something really simple like, um, you know, if someone comes to me with a viral sore throat and thinks they need antibiotics, if they know me and trust me, I can say, you really don't need antibiotics. They're not going to help you and they're going to be disadvantageous you know, from an NHS perspective as well. They'll accept that very quickly. If it's something that I don't know, they're much more likely to put up an argument and and um, end up with, with both sides of the consultation frustrated. So it's really important. But what we do have to recognise is relationship-based care has changed from the traditional concepts of continuity. When I, I was brought up in a practice that had very strict personal lists, I was a partner in that practice after I trained, and we absolutely believed in kind of one doctor, one patient for as long as you're a GP. And you're generally in that same practice for the whole of your career. Now, that model can't exist in modern society where patients are more mobile, clinicians are more mobile, expectations are different. So we have to think differently about it. That's the work that we've been doing as a college. So looking, exploring what relationships with teams, with micro teams, rather than with individual GPs might mean. Exploring what the implications of technology might be. So can you build as effective relationships remotely as you can face-to-face, -face, for example? Being perhaps a bit more specific about which patients really need and value and gain benefit from continuity and which ones don't, and then differentiating, segmenting out those people. So there's lots of things that we're exploring as a college. And um, although it's been tough pushing this agenda during the pandemic and during this crisis, there's also probably at a time when you know there's a what feels like at times an existential crisis in general practice where we have to go back to our roots and remember what's really important to us. And what we're seeing across our members and more broadly across general practice is a, a real sense of engagement and excitement that we're thinking differently about the core facet of general practice and trying to do something about it. What we haven't managed to do is persuade policymakers of this yet. So patients understand, clinicians understand the growing number of our specialist colleagues working in hospital understand the importance of it. And um, policymakers, it seems to be beyond their comprehension. And that's something I find personally very frustrating. This is definitely something that Jeremy Hunt is obviously very fond of, this whole idea of continuity. He seems to be pushing it every time he has one of those evidence hearings for his inquiry. So I imagine it will come out quite clearly in that report that continuity is is an important thing. But um Anyway, we'll have and to I see. I apologise, Jeremy. I should have made that exception. <laughs> well, he's not—he's not a policymaker. He's not a policymaker now, is he? Really? Because he's—he's uh, on the back benches. But I mean, it will be interesting to see whether what that report says, I think, and whether any of it gets taken up by the the current health secretary. And I, I hope it will. I mean, I, I think, yeah, certainly I, I've um, pushed it very hard in the number of evidence sessions that I've done with House Select Committees. And as you say, Jeremy Hunt is very supportive of it and understand its its importance. So, you know, that's, that's a, a little chink of light. 
I asked you the same question last time we spoke um, about whether you felt positive about the future for general practice. I mean, as we've discussed today, there's been a few changes since we did that, but I'm pretty sure I, I know what you're going to say, but I thought I'd ask again, do you still feel positive about the future of general practice? And if so, what makes you feel that way? What am I going to say, Emma? <laughs> Oh, you're, you're going to say you do? I'm sure you are. <laughs> yes, I do. Of course, of course, I do because I, because I'm, I'm I'm optimistic by by nature. Uh, I, I'm deeply concerned. I, I really am deeply concerned about where general practice is at the moment. But the argument that general practice is so central to the health of our communities and so central to the effectiveness of the NHS is such a strong argument that eventually politicians and policymakers must uh, get it. And what really energises me is when I go around visiting practices around the country, and I've done a lot of that since, um, you know, lockdown has been kind of released and talk to teams. You know, what I see is an incredible sense of energy and passion and commitment, and even sometimes quite a high level of job satisfaction. You know, when you talk to GPs about how terrible things are, they agree things are terrible. When you talk to them about the nature of the work that they're doing individually with patients, with their communities, you get a real sense of kind of energy and passion and commitment. And, and that is the basis for general practice surviving during this very difficult period and then thriving when government realise that they have a job to do to support general practice. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Professor Marshall for speaking with me. As I mentioned at the start, the GP Online team will be covering all the news from the RCGP annual conference next week. So please do visit gponline.com for more on that. I'm back on the podcast next week with Nick to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. Please do join me then. 